0: So, Jay, I really dig Nightcrawler's new look. The chainmail thing? Yeah. I was iffy on it at first, but he's rocking that pretty hard. And the knight Templar bit goes really nicely with his whole priest thing. Miles, Nightcrawler isn't a priest. He's totally a priest. He got ordained and everything. That was an illusion. Why would anyone hold an illusory ordination?
1: Ah, you see, it was part of a complicated and nefarious scheme.
0: To mess with Nightcrawler's head?
1: To get him elected pope. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 152 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: Man, sometimes short and sweet works really well for a cold open. The Pope!
1: Sure, why not?
0: Oh, that certainly was an era of X-Men.
1: I was deliberating whether or not to keep in the part with the communion wafers that made people discorporate.
0: I mean, I didn't grow up Catholic, but I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to work that way.
1: That's exactly how it works.
0: Oh, well, I guess I'm glad then.
1: Yeah, no, it's a rough way to raise your kids up. But we digress immediately,
0: as is our way. So I don't know, we were faster on that one than usual. <laughs> Perhaps. So we are here today to talk about a whole bunch of annuals. I feel like there should be a warning ahead of time.
1: Attention listeners, the following episode is about Franklin Richards. Please keep your hands, feet, and understanding of causality inside the podcast at all times.
0: Yeah, this is a complicated one, and it's not one that necessarily makes perfect sense, but it's fun enough that I feel okay about that.
1: Additionally, if you are from an alternate timeline, please make sure that your paradox inhibitors are set to position 6. It won't make any difference, but you'll feel a little better.
0: <laughs> right? Right. So yeah, we've done a number of annuals before, and as you may recall, over the last couple of years' worth of annuals, Marvel has done this thing where they take all the annuals in the Marvel Universe and turn them into one big megastory.
1: And that, specifically, is why we can't have nice things.
0: Yeah, it worked kind of well. I mean, we had, what, we had Atlantis attacks, we had the Evolutionary War, and there were some good stories in there, some X-Men, some not. I object to Atlantis attacks. Uh, that's entirely reasonable. From what I understand, the non-X stuff tends to work better. No,
1: Insufficient Namor.
0: Yeah, Namor was, like, off doing other stuff.
1: He was faking his own death. He was pulling an Xavier, and basically, I see no point in off-panel Namor.
0: I mean, I'm pretty sure he was just admiring his abs in the mirror the entire time. He was
1: just doing sit-ups.
0: <laughs> yes, perfect. See, sit-ups. So
1: this is sort of taking a, a Lego Batman turn.
0: Does he just yell Imperious Rex every time he does a sit-up?
1: He yells Imperious Rex every time he does anything, Miles. He's an asshole at the gym.
0: Excellent. I'm really glad I don't go to the gym with him. Or at all, for that matter.
1: I still maintain, you know, my favorite part of the Jay's headcanon zine is definitely that Namor is no longer welcome in the Vancouver Aquarium, any franchise of Bed, Bath & Beyond, or the state of Utah.
0: (laughs) I believe all of those things. I
1: really want someone to make that canon. Like, it wouldn't change anything that significantly. But, yeah, basically, um, this came out of a conversation on Tumblr about the best times to yell Imperius Rex. Uh And my answer was during Climax, Mm -hmm. ideally solo. When being forcibly ejected from any kind of home goods or department store.
0: Right, right.
1: And while being told you can't come back to the Vancouver Aquarium.
0: Okay, so it all ties together. This makes sense to
1: yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. There's sort of continuity, or at least continuity of Namor jokes.
0: Al Ewing, if you're listening, I feel like you might be the right person for this.
1: Where is Namor now? Anyway, what book is he in? Uh, he got
0: killed and Psh, then he got Like, better.
1: that's gonna stop him. Right? He's Namor.
0: All right, like I said, I think he got better. So, all of that very much aside... Marvel decided to do something new in 1990 with their annuals. Instead of having this giant story that, like, every single annual in the Marvel Universe tied into, they sort of broke it up into chunks, like, basically different families of books. So the Avengers would have their big story, and in this case, the X-Men would have their big story.
1: It might be because of the creators involved, but to me at least, this setup feels very, very much like the Mutant Massacre. It's a fairly small group of creators who are working in fairly close proximity. While the story sections are set in sequential order... There's a sense of connectedness and, I guess, creative continuity to them, tonally especially, that you don't necessarily see in those really huge crossover annuals.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you there. And in fact, we'll see two more years of this with varying degrees of quality.
1: I mean, one of them is Shattershot.
0: Yeah, 1991 has Kings of Pain and 1992 has Shattershot and Those certainly are stories, and we'll get to those in a little while. The 90s were a difficult time. But for now, we have Days of Future Present. And if you think that name sounds familiar, it's because it totally does, because this is technically a sequel to Days of Future Past.
1: And I think technically the first part of the tradition of just taking the already complicated Days of Future Past concept and throwing in a handful more plot threads until what you have is sort of a Gordian knot of continuity. So this is the first step toward that. And it's a big step, it's more of a leap, because it centers around reality warper extraordinaire and wide-eyed Moppet of our hearts, Franklin Richards.
0: And perhaps we should give some context, because we have so many different characters coming in. We don't just have all the X characters, we also have the Fantastic Four thrown in, because, you know, Franklin Richards is their kid.
1: Ooh, can I do it this time? Okay, do it. Previously on everything.
0: Okay, so let's start with the X-Men.
1: After the Siege Perilous scattered the X-Men, they are currently in three sort of micro-teams. We've got Forge and Banshee in New York looking for their other former teammates. We've got a de Storm running around with her new bro Gambit stealing shit. And we've got Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee who are running around Mad Rapport generally wreaking havoc. What about the New Mutants?
0: So the New Mutants are now living in the sub-basement of the destroyed Xavier Mansion... Training with Cable.
1: Do they have to live in the basement because they're ashamed of their new
0: costumes? I'm going
1: to say that I
0: like their costumes, damn it. But anyway, their lineup is Cable, Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Boom Boom, Richter, and Warlock. What about X-Factor?
1: X-Factor is living in ship, which has taken the form of a skyscraper in the middle of New York. They are public heroes working frequently with local law enforcement when not getting into fights with them. That team consists of Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, and Archangel. Now, I guess it's time to step outside of the X-Line. Oh, man. So, um, I guess that brings us to the Fantastic Four. We're sort of the Fantastic Five right now.
0: Right. So, they are living out of a place called Four Freedoms Plaza. That's that building with the big, like, four carved into the roof of it. After the Baxter building was destroyed by Doctor Doom's son. Wait, the one with the hat? No, I think a different son. Maybe, like, an adopted son. I don't know. I'm not a Fantastic Four pert.
1: How many shitty kids does Dr. Doom have?
0: I mean, you know, if you're Dr. Doom, then I'm just going to say you're probably spreading your sorceress seed far and wide. Do you
1: think Doombots can get people pregnant?
0: Well, now I can't stop thinking about it. Anyway, though. We'll
1: be back next episode. With- <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the Fantastic Four's lineup right now is Mr. Fantastic, the Invisible Woman, and the Human Torch like normal. Ben Grimm is still there, but he's not orange and rocky anymore. He's just like a guy in a trench coat. And a really good hat. And a really good hat. We also have Ms. Marvel, not Carol Danvers, not Kamala Khan. This is Sharon Ventura, also known as the She-Thing. She is now a former pro wrestler supervillain person, sort of, who looks like the thing used to look.
1: So I'm going to need some help on this because I thought the Fantastic Four's mutations, that their powers, were specific to them as individuals. They were what happened when the solar radiation from the storm that got caught in interacted with their specific physiology. How is there another person who got the Orange Rocky situation?
0: I honestly have no idea, but I suspect it involves a lot of Reed Richard super science and probably some bad decisions. She's got a big M on her costume. She does, because, you know, Ms. Marvel. We also have young Franklin Richards, the, I don't know, five-ish year old son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman. He's a mutant whose powers manifested early, he can warp reality, he can see the future, he can send out dream selves, there's a lot going on.
1: If I'm not mistaken, Reed actually locked down most of Franklin's powers at some point before this, didn't he?
0: Yeah, one of the Fantastic Four villains, I want to say a nihilist, but I'm not positive, pulled Franklin's powers to their maximum and bad things happened, so Reed locked them down until Franklin got older.
1: Reed is a bad parent.
0: I can't fully blame him, because as we see in this episode, Franklin's powers are a little iffy.
1: Yeah, but Reed is still a bad parent.
0: Well, I want to disagree with you there.
1: He's a really bad parent.
0: So, those are our teams. Now, what also factors in backstory-wise is the infamous X-Men story, Days of Future Past.
1: So, Days of Future Past was a two-issue storyline that took place over X-Men number 141 to 142. That storyline introduced Earth-811, a dark alternate future where anti-mutant hysteria plus Sentinel robot takeover had basically destroyed the world. Mutants were locked down in prison camps. Everything was miserable and generally post-apocalyptic.
0: So the surviving X-Men of this future sent Kate Pride's mind back in time into her younger body, Kitty Pride, to prevent an assassination that would lead to this timeline occurring.
1: There were two characters who we saw in that timeline— who were an adult Franklin Richards and Rachel Summers, who in, again, the Earth 811 timeline is the kid of, as far as she knows, Jean Grey, who in that timeline just merged with the Phoenix instead of being taken over by it, and Scott Summers.
0: And Rachel time-traveled back to the present after that storyline to figure out why her dark future was still there, even after the assassination in question was prevented.
1: Well, not exactly. She was actually slingshotted back by Kate Pride against Rachel's will.
0: That's true. It does get complicated. We're going to learn a lot more about that in upcoming Excalibur coverage.
1: If you listen to the episode where Miles and Elizabeth talked about an Excalibur issue with Franklin Richards, you might find some familiar threads with Days of Future Present.
0: So, um, just a little bit more background. If you're going to read Days of Future Present on your own, and good luck—it's kind of hard to find. But if you are, you should know that part two is part three, and part three is part two.
1: Right. The correct reading order is Fantastic Four, New Mutants. X-Factor, the first part of the Uncanny X-Men main story, and then between two pages of that, the Uncanny X-Men backup story, and then the rest of the Uncanny X-Men main story.
0: Just to keep things as straightforward as possible. Hey! Basically, New Mutants Annual came out late since Rob Liefeld turned in a bunch of the art, but then at the last minute, canceled and said he couldn't do the rest. So with all of that out of the way, let's dive into our story. Let's dive into these annuals and see what Franklin Richards is up to.
1: We are starting with Fantastic Four. This is how you know we're talking about an annual crossover when the first book doesn't even have an X in the title. It does, however, have some very familiar creators. It's written by Walter Simonson and drawn by Jackson Geis.
0: Yeah, so both people who were artists on X Factor for a long time each. And I gotta say, Jackson Geis, his work was pretty good in X Factor. It is really, really good here. I'm really impressed.
1: He's very good at drawing early 90s hair.
0: His hair has so many, like, strands and so much body.
1: Well, sometimes, and it's a really deliberate choice, which we're going to see later in this issue.
0: So it opens with the Fantastic Four heading in their Fantasticar back from a picnic to find the Baxter building intact in New York. And that's weird because it totally got blown up, like we mentioned before.
1: And again, the Fantastic Four's lineup right now is Mr. Fantastic, the Invisible Woman, the Human Torch, Ms. Marvel, who is Sharon Ventura with the powers of the Thing, and Ben Grimm, who does not have the powers of the Thing. They're also joined by teeny wee Moppet Franklin
0: Richards. And so they go to investigate, because this is kind of weird, like their old digs are back up and undemolished. When they head inside, it's exactly how it used to be quite a while ago.
1: In fact, they come face to face with the Bronze Age versions of themselves. This is the point where that deliberate Jackson guy's hairstyling comes in, because he does a spot on John Byrne for the older versions of the team. Now, the old Fantastic Four is just as baffled by this situation as the current Fantastic Four. And they are able, because they've got, you know, the old Baxter building security measures, which the new Fantastic Four haven't been used to for a long time. They're able to capture the present version of the team and interrogate them.
0: Now, the two teams go back and forth on which of them is real, which of them is time lost and which of them is time traveled or whatever.
1: And read in particular, or, or rather main timeline read, you know, present read as opposed to past read. Lists off the differences, and this is going to happen a lot. This is going to keep happening throughout this crossover, and every time I think of sort of the highlights for children, find the differences between these two pictures.
0: Oh, man, I did so many of those in my pediatric dentist's office when I was a kid.
1: This Reed Richards is holding a duck. (laughs) This Susan Storm has no left hand.
0: Or no son, as the case may be.
1: No, no, she's got a son. He's just... Very, very different.
0: Yeah, see, that's the thing. Reed is talking about how you're clearly different than we are. You're clearly from the past. Look, you don't even have a son. Past Sue says, we totally do. He's over there. And points to an adult man in a red jumpsuit. It's Joel Hodgson from Mystery Science Theater 3000.
1: Pancakes. Aw, I blew it.
0: Okay, so it's not actually Joel, although that would be great. But it is, we're pretty sure, Franklin Richards. Just like a way older, fully adult Franklin Richards.
1: And the Bronze Age Fantastic Four don't seem to see anything strange about this.
0: However, the modern Invisible Woman sees that things are definitely weird and tells this to her grown-up son.
1: Don't you see? Them! This whole building! It is the dream, and you're creating it! Why? Who are you
0: really, and why are you here? No, that's not the question! That's death! Death! Rachel and I had love! I won't let it die! And he-
1: fleas so there's grown-up Franklin running around and he's got some issues and the Fantastic Four aren't the only ones who are dealing with a changed New York Forge and Banshee are currently running around trying to track down the X-Men after they've been split up and also doing their best to uh, blend in with the locals
0: all right Jay you're moving to New York soon so you should probably do this line for Banshee
1: I'm not gonna do the accent but I love New York crime violence passion The Hard Rock Cafe. Just the place for a man of action like myself.
0: I love that panel so much. I think we both independently, like, took a screenshot of it as we were going through this.
1: Those are basically my feelings about moving there.
0: (laughs) That's legit. And so, yeah, they're just doing their thing, you know, ostensibly looking for the X-Men, mostly crossing over with both Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor. When suddenly, this adult Franklin Richards shows up and manifests to them. He's really happy to see them. They're his old teachers, but they're too young. And they're supposed to be dead anyway. Anyway. And he freaks out again and flies away in the direction of Four Freedoms Plaza.
1: And Banshee and Forge, who are a little less directly involved with the situation, and so maybe a little bit more able to think clearly, are justifiably concerned and follow.
0: And our next scene has an excellent, excellent caption transitioning us to somewhere entirely new.
1: Meanwhile, deep within a hidden crypt, somewhere between here and now. I love that segue, and that segue is, I think, one of the best tone setters of this story, because this is going eventually to turn
0: out to be a ghost story. I mean, sort of. It's more complicated, but effectively, yeah.
1: Well, it's more complicated metaphysically, but tonally and structurally and thematically, it's very, very much a ghost story. It's about loss and longing and, you know, what might have been, and the cost of regaining that. And I feel like it's got that in common with a lot of really good ghost stories. I mean, ghost stories at their best fundamentally are about our relationships with death and loss, either- you know, the ghost's own relationships to that or the survivor's relationships to that and either wanting something they can't have or not being able to let go of something they're still clinging
0: to. Yeah, I mean, a good ghost story should be scary, sure, but sad before it's scary.
1: Yeah, and this, again, this is a ghost story. And if you read through it knowing that, then there are a lot of moments that might read oddly otherwise that are just very resonant. And that, I think, is one of them. But what comes after isn't so much resonant as just kind of alarming.
0: Because here we meet a character who will quickly become part of the sort of outer ring of the X-Men's pantheon of villains. This is Ahab, who's basically a cyborg old sea captain? I don't know why he comes off as an old sea captain to me, but he totally does. Maybe it's the beard. Or maybe it's that his name and appearance and harpoon are references to Moby Dick.
1: He looks like a refugee from the New Gods.
0: Kind of, yeah. There's a bit of fourth world to him. There
1: is a ton of fourth world to him. And he is woken up by an alarm declaring a code red time emergency.
0: Have you heard my new band, Code Red Time Emergency?
1: We just ran out of Mountain Dew, man. <laughs>
0: And what the Code Red Time Emergency is telling him is that Franklin Richards has manifested somewhere in the time stream, which is really not okay. I mean, just from what we've seen of Franklin Richards so far, it's pretty clear that he's got strange powers, he can warp reality, that's probably no good. Clearly there's some time travel going on, and Ahab's jam is apparently to prevent that. And so he unleashes a sentinel warp attack.
1: Ooh, I call that one for my new band.
0: Okay, that's entirely reasonable. What kind of band are they?
1: I'm gonna say sentinel warp attack. Definitely Electronica and Math Rock.
0: I feel okay about that.
1: I want to go back, though. What's Code Red Time Emergency?
0: Uh, they're sort of a pop-punk band, I think.
1: They could be pop-punk. I could see them going noise core too.
0: But anyway, this is Ahab, and he's going to end up being really complicated. There are going to be a lot of teases over the years as to who Ahab really is, some of them in this story itself.
1: There are so many in this story itself. This story is basically Ahab and the Red Herrings. They could start yet another band.
0: Oh man, they're kind of a 50s crooner band.
1: But like satirical.
0: Yeah, okay, kind of like Ruben and the Jets.
1: No, they're not that good.
0: They try. <laughs> well, anyway, we're going to see this dude show up a lot. We're going to see that sentinel warp attack be a big deal repeatedly. But back at the Baxter building, Reed Richards is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. How there could have been this alternate version of his son. How there could have been this older version of the Fantastic Four, who of course now has disappeared with Franklin... And he decides to do something that was kind of a surprise to me when I read it.
1: He decides that the thing to do right now is to release young Franklin's mind locks. That this clearly will be the key to the mystery. Fucking read.
0: You know, science. It's all for the sake of science.
1: If he believes that they're that dangerous to his kid. Then he should at least be setting up controlled circumstances, but no, he's just like, Let's just science it, chaps! I
0: mean, to be fair, they are kind of in a stasis field that Franklin left for them that traps them inside the old Baxter building, so circumstances are a little bit dire.
1: I do it anyway, because I'm science adventure man, and I don't care about my children as living humans. In fact, I don't really care about any living humans.
0: Well, thankfully, Reed is interrupted by the aforementioned sentinel warp attack.
1: I'm Reed Richards, and I've actually got more sympathetic motivation than this, but I'm much more fun to voice, like I'm just a raging asshole and possibly from a 50s pulp, so we're gonna run with it.
0: You know, the Venture Brothers does that version of Reed pretty damn well.
1: They do, they do. Well, he is explicitly evil if you're talking about Professor Impossible. There's also, you know, evil Reed from the Ultimate Universe, the Maker.
0: Oh, I love the Maker so much. Also, his head is giant, and that's part of his power, and it's pretty great.
1: Is his head giant, or is it just his hat? I thought it was a i think the hat covers a giant head but anyway
0: uh yeah there is a drone attack so these aren't sentinels like we know them not the big purple like sweater hatted robot guys
1: these are goofy little sentinels which look like you'd buy and assemble them at radio shack
0: i mean they're basically drones but they're specifically targeting young franklin since he's a temporal anomaly since he's going to grow up into this scary older franklin
1: that shouldn't make him a temporal anomaly that doesn't make sense i think they're just targeting the nearest franklin who in this case happens to ironically be the one who isn't actually a temporal anomaly, but...
0: Well, well, they are also targeting the invisible woman, Franklin's mother, in hopes of, you know, eradicating the bloodline completely, which perhaps isn't the best logic, but regardless.
1: Well, to be fair, I feel like if there is a kid most likely to blow up the future, it's not Franklin. Everyone knows Franklin's a threat. It's the one everyone forgets about, Valeria, who is smarter than everyone put together and has Doctor Doom as her godfather.
0: I was just going to say Quentin Quire.
1: No, he's not nearly competent enough, and the future is where he keeps his stuff. Quentin Quire likes starting revolutions with the understanding that they're probably going to get knocked down because he likes being the scrappy rebel. You can't actually win if you want to stay the scrappy rebel. Valeria, on the other hand, is six steps ahead of everybody, and again, buds with Doctor Doom.
0: Well, either way, the Fantastic Four does manage to blow up all the drones with some awesome uses of their powers, and Forge and Banshee are able to get into the Baxter building, meet up with the Fantastic Four, and compare notes.
1: Sorry, I know I'm supposed to say something here, but I'm just sort of stuck thinking about how desperately I want to write picture books about Valeria Richards.
0: That would be pretty amazing.
1: Right? Marvel actually call me this time. This is the one time I'm not being sarcastic.
0: (laughs) I'm down. And so they're trying to figure out where older Franklin Richards might have gone, and so they ask the young version, hey, if you couldn't be with your family, where would you go?
1: Well, Franklin would go find his best friends, the Power Kids.
0: Yeah, the Power Pack. And so when our heroes go to the home of the Powers they see a nice innocent domestic scene of the four power kids hanging out, their parents looking on. They're playing with their
1: best friend, Franklin.
0: Their best friend, Franklin, who in this case appears to be a 25-year-old full-grown man in a future prison jumpsuit.
1: Hiding behind the couch and playing and talking as if he's a kid.
0: And this is legitimately creepy right here.
1: So we're going to see Franklin shift ages and locations a lot and to some extent drag the reality around him with him. Franklin Richards, as you may or may not recall, is a very, very powerful reality warper. And he's also capable of manifesting different alternate versions of himself. The latter is part of his power set on any given day. The former is the powers that Reed's got locked away in Kid Franklin's head. And one of my favorite things about this, and again, one of the things that sort of sets it up as a ghost story, is those anomalies. The adult Franklin who doesn't act quite right, who everyone responds to like he's a kid. The weird sort of subtle grading disconnects between the setup and the environment. And I think that's something that comics are a really ideal medium to set up because if you had to describe this in text, it wouldn't have half of the impact that it does. And if you had to hear voices, see actors perform it out, then the shifts in the environment, the shifts in people's demeanors, the shifts in time and you know, the subtle tweaks would either be much more overt or just sort of get
0: lost. Yeah, I completely agree. Having a disconnect between the plot and the visuals is pretty perfect for something like this.
1: I'm going to actually expand that and say comics are a singularly effective medium for conveying cognitive dissonance.
0: Yeah, that's uh, well stated, very concise. That's,
1: that's something, I mean, Fun Home is kind of the gold standard for that because you've got the multiple narrative threads between the way the characters in a dysfunctional family talk, the things that they're actually doing, and then the adult Allison's narration talking about that still from a subjective perspective. But yeah, this is a pretty good example
0: as well. So, we've checked in on our heroes, we've checked in on our mysterious villain Ahab briefly. However, there are lots of characters in this, and one of those characters is Rachel Summers.
1: Now, as you may recall, as you likely recall, and as in fact we reminded you earlier in this very episode, in the dark future, Rachel and Franklin were lovers.
0: Yeah, and Franklin was killed during the desperate plan of Days of Future Past, leaving Rachel as a survivor who eventually traveled back in time to our present day.
1: Rachel, at this point, is the phoenix. She is probably the most powerful telepath in the world. She is hanging out at Excalibur's lighthouse with her teammate Megan, lounging around in various and sundry pinup poses.
0: I gotta say, I mentioned I like the way Jackson Geist draws this issue, and especially right here, he just draws amazingly beautiful women in this scene. Like, beautiful in a classical way, not in a weird, you know, tits and ass, 90s superhero in way. And that's kind of cool to see. It's kind of refreshing.
1: Well, and again, in a pin upy way that's character appropriate. We've talked about this with Rogue. And I think one of the things I dig about this scene is that Rachel and Megan, they're both in sort of pin sexy poses, but they've got very different body language. So you've got Rachel, who is very confident and very much owns her sexuality. And that's very much a part of her as a character. And you've got Megan, who basically learned to be a person from daytime soap
0: operas. And so she's sort of posing like a television character. Yeah, and
1: I totally buy Megan just like posing when she's hanging out or sunbathing.
0: Right. Whether or not she thinks she needs to impress somebody, that's just how she thinks people work.
1: It's actually, it's a really charming character nod. In fact, I think there are a lot of things that I don't know whether they were deliberate or not, that when they're with other characters I find grating and with Megan, I just sort of assume they're part of what she does.
0: Right, exactly. However, this idyllic scene doesn't last too long because suddenly Rachel gets a very strong psychic flash from halfway around the world, something she never expected to feel again.
1: And as Rachel does every time she gets a sudden psychic flash, she busts through the nearest wall and shoots off into the sky.
0: Well, thankfully, she's outside at this point, so no walls need to be destroyed yet.
1: Well, she's got to go find one.
0: So she goes and finds a wall, breaks it down, and then goes to see what the psychic flash is all about. So this kind of bothers me. She mentions here that she never expected to feel something like this, But this issue comes out right before a big old flashback issue, the one Elizabeth and I talked about, where she totally saw Franklin Richards in the present day.
1: That's Excalibur number 26, which again was released after Days of Future Present, but takes place significantly before it. And in that storyline, Mastermind tricks Rachel into thinking that he is Franklin Richards returned from the dead.
0: I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but it would have been nice if they had found a way in one of the two stories to give a nod to the fact that, you know, there was another Franklin and Rachel story right next door.
1: This kind of reminds me of Alex Summers and the subsequent cases of the duplicitous redheads.
0: Oh, right. The Marvel Comics Presents story and then Meltdown.
1: And they're basically the same.
0: Except Meltdown's way better.
1: Well, Meltdown is amazing and brilliant and perfect. And I'm still really proud of us for pulling off those costumes.
0: (laughs) That was pretty rad, yeah. So anyway, that's our first chapter. That's Fantastic Four annual number 23. The second chapter, or third if you trust the cover, but don't trust the cover. The cover is full of lies. Is New Mutants annual number six.
1: Now, we mentioned that this particular issue met with some production snags. And I am going to let assistant editor David B. Schwartz fill in the blanks in the note that appears on the inside front cover of the issue titled A Tale of Woe and a Tribute to Interpersonal Fortitude or How This Book Got to the Printer. Hi, my name is David, and today I'll be your guide through the wonderful world of the New Mutants annual contents page. You may not know me, but I'm Bob Harris's editor of this fine, fine publication who also likes to say conundrum a lot. Personal assistant here at Marvel. Okay, okay, I'm a college intern. And since Bob is currently residing at the Bellevue Home for the Insane, recovering from a multiple nervous breakdown, the responsibility for writing this page has fallen to me. Well, boy, have I got a story for you. Stick with me. It gets tricky from here. It all started so innocently. Wheezy Simonson's plot for the once and future mutant, a heck of a story starting on page two, was all done and Rob Liefeld's art was just starting to arrive. The sun was shining, the birds were singing, Bob and Daryl Edelman, Bob's assistant editor at the time, were here. I was here, the new kids on the block were as far away as possible and all was right with the world. Then all heck broke loose. Rob didn't have time to do the issue, Daryl left Marvel to write the great American novel, and the office was left in a state of disarray. Terry Shoemaker, who had gallantly stepped in for Rob, got sick and couldn't finish the job. That very same day, Hilary Barta informed us that he couldn't finish inking this issue. By this time, Wheezy had disappeared somewhere in Scotland, and to top it all off, the Pat Sajak show was canceled. It was about this time that Bob started talking about his spleen incessantly, and I realized that perhaps Bob was losing his already tenuous grip on reality. I just had to step in, take over, and try to pick up the pieces of the New Mutants' shattered lives. With the aid of pristine penciler Chris Wozniak and inkers extraordinaire Scott Williams, Al Milgram, Art Thiebert, Harry Candelario, lilting letterer Joe Rosen, and creative colorist Brad Vankata, I got the issue done and even had time to add tribute the second to be found on page 47, a wonderful little tale written by Peter David and his goofy wristwatch, which runs backwards and sold out real quick so barely anyone else in the world has it. Penciled by Gavin Curtis, inked by Dan Penosian, colored by Tom Vincent, and lettered by Joe Rosen. Bob wanted me to fill the remaining pages with a short story he had just written about his new pet vegetable, Brian the Broccoli, but I decided instead to throw in two beautiful pinups by racy Rob Liefeld and special guest Jimmy Hoffa, who we found buried under Bob's desk. Uh, He goes on a little bit with some credits, but this should give you a rough sense of the production pitfalls that this New Mutants annual met.
0: And so, what that means is that now and forever, the two middle chapters of Days of Future Present are swapped. So, there you have it.
1: Also, there are two random pages of this issue drawn by Rob Liefeld, and the rest is
0: Terry Shoemaker. Yep, these things happen. So, we open with Franklin, who now is inconsistently wearing his Days of Future Past M green jumpsuit, heading to the rubble of the Xavier School, which, as you will recall, was destroyed way back in Inferno.
1: Normally, I would look at the differences in Franklin's appearances continuity errors. Here, Not so much. I am entirely fine with them. I think they fit the story nicely, and I think they add well to the subtle sense of just something being
0: off. Well, and Franklin certainly sees something being off because he doesn't remember the school being destroyed, and so he fixes it. And now it's intact again. It's a beat-up, futuristic version of intact, but it's totally intact.
1: It's not just the building that he changes, though. Downstairs, the new mutants are in the sub-basement training in the danger room when suddenly a whole team of futuristic new mutants teleports in to challenge them.
0: And I always really like in comics when you'll suddenly have, like, a new future or past or whatever version of the team you're familiar with. It's really fun just figuring out what the deal with each character is.
1: Well, some of these are easier to explain than others. There is, for instance, Cudgel, who is a large guy with a cudgel.
0: That's pretty much his entire deal.
1: I wonder if he's friends with Axe.
0: I'm gonna say probably. I
1: wonder if they trade codename tips.
0: (laughs) Well, we also have Franklin Richards now in a futuristic version of the New Mutants outfit. He's much younger, too. He's a young teenager at this point. And we have a young Rachel Summers because, as we know, she was in the New Mutants before everything went to hell.
1: There's also a woman named Blue who teleports and looks enough like Nightcrawler that she's pretty clearly supposed to be his daughter, presumably in this timeline with Amanda Sefton, who is his emphasis on adoptive sister whom he's been dating lately.
0: We also have my personal favorite, Blaze, who's sort of a futuristic samurai-looking dude.
1: And we've got a character who's going to be very familiar to New Mutants readers, Doug Ramsey.
0: Yeah, so that's a thing. The New Mutants figure that this is probably just another training exercise that Cable's putting them through. Cable tells them, no, this is definitely real. These people are real.
1: Can I talk about the art a little bit here? Yeah. So I really enjoy Shoemaker on this issue for the most part, with one major glaring exception, and that is that his Doug Ramsey and Franklin Richards are identical.
0: His Rachel and Rain look pretty similar as well.
1: Yeah, but they're usually wearing different outfits, and Doug and Franklin are basically dressed the same. They've got the exact same haircut, and their faces are so similar that- there are times when I have to rely on context to tell them apart, which honestly is kind of refreshing um,
0: as a problem to have with male characters. <laughs> right. But yeah. Well, Warlock can definitely tell them apart, because as far as Warlock knows, his best friend in the world, Doug Ramsey, has been dead for a long time.
1: If, as self-friend Cable says, self-friend Doug, you are real, you are indeed alive! Oh, joy, ecstasy, delight!
0: <laughs> to which Doug responds, I am
1: alive, Warlock. But the name is Magus. May. And as he says that, he transforms into Magus.
0: I really like that this isn't explained very much, that we don't really find out what happened to Doug other than presumably he was infected with the transmode virus.
1: And then would have had to have killed Warlock. The way Warlock's culture works. So there's a Warlock and a Magus, and the Magus is the parent, the Warlock is the offspring, and they battle to the death. If the Magus wins, they produce another Warlock eventually. If the Warlock wins, they become the Magus, produce a Warlock and so on and so forth. And we'd seen Doug actually have a nightmare in New Mutants before his death where he was infected with Warlock's transmode virus and functionally became entirely techno-organic, which triggered that change in Warlock, at which point, Warlock became a magus and, you know, immediately challenged the now techno-organic Doug. What's implied to have happened here is that, yeah, you know, this took place and Doug won that fight.
0: Yeah, so that's incredibly troubling and sad.
1: It also, I think, accidentally foreshadows a character we're eventually going to see an Excalibur who's going to be going by the name of Duglock.
0: And Duglock is quite complicated. Yes. Well, there's a big fight here, during which Blaze pulls out the katana from his back, which flips in half to turn into a bow that shoots energy arrows. Wait, does the bow still have a blade? Yeah, it seems really impractical, but he's just basically as 90s as he can be. Like, if he and Shatterstar ever met, I'm pretty sure they would either make out or annihilate.
1: Possibly both. And his name is Blaze?
0: It surely is. Is he
1: related to Sienna Blaze?
0: Nah, I mean, she's pretty 90s too, but probably not. But anyway, the new mutants escape into the danger room control booth. But instead of finding Cable there, they find Banshee. Well, sort of Banshee.
1: Amazing Banshee.
0: Yeah, he's got a big red beard and a ponytail and an eye patch and a robot arm.
1: And while basically a similar set of prostheses makes Cable look like a gritty cyborg, it makes Banshee look like a fucking techno-organic ship captain.
0: He looks really great. And also he's wistful, as all ship captains, I believe, should be.
1: Sam, lad! Birdo, rain! I'm gonna have to do the accent, it's written out, this is terrible. I don't know if I can do this, man. You got it. What are you doing here, alive? Tis impossible, Sean, me lad. They be naught but ghosts. The conjuring of an old man's wistful dreams in these sorrowful days.
0: He's a sad cyborg
1: dad. He is. He's sad cyborg dad, Banshee.
0: Also, speaking of foreshadowing, Banshee will totally be the headmaster of the school in Generation X. So he will not, that-
1: however, have robot limbs at the time.
0: Eh, what can you do?
1: I mean, there are obvious solutions. <laughs>
0: Well, Banshee tries to calm everybody down. Franklin, however, isn't really having it. He says he's just going to make everybody go away. He's just going to make this big conflict stop by making our heroes disappear.
1: First of all, can we refer to this Banshee as Captain Banshee for purposes of disambiguation with actual continuity current Banshee? Yes, we can. All right. Captain Banshee and young New Mutants Rachel try to explain to Franklin that this is wrong that what he's created is wrong, that there's something not right about them or what's going on. And Franklin finds himself then collapsed in the present-day rubble of the Xavier Mansion.
0: I mean, it's pretty clear at this point that Franklin is generating these visions of what he remembers. And when even your visions are telling you that what you're doing is not okay, that's especially sad.
1: At the same time, though, you've then fairly clearly got a fairly accurate view of... You know, the friends and teammates who you trust to have your back and call you on your bullshit.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really paints a thorough and believable picture of what Franklin grew up with before everything went even further to hell.
1: Well, and also how powerful he is that these characters are doing what they would do and perceiving the situation in the ways that they would, not the way his imagination would.
0: So Franklin, as is his way, disappears. He escapes leaving the new mutants wondering what the hell just happened.
1: And Sunspot decides to just sort of bust through any mystery and go about as firmly on the nose as he can.
0: It's as if we were talking to a ghost who couldn't accept dying.
1: Isn't it? Isn't it, Roberto? It is a lot like that.
0: Well, now that Roberto's figured out a big portion of the plot, it's time for the heroes from that first annual to show up. It's Reed Richards, Sue Richards, young Franklin Richards, and Banshee showing up in the Fantasticar.
1: Yay, fantastic car!
0: So, Reed explains what's going on. There's time travel with this omnipotent version of Franklin Richards, and Richter of the New Mutants is shocked that such a nice little kid as the one before him could turn into the madman he just dealt with.
1: I mean, look, it's the Marvel Universe. Sunspot is less shocked because Sunspot, unlike Richter, has actually encountered a version of himself that's been twisted that far.
0: I hated it, and if it was hard on me, how much worse for a little child? Even if he is Reed Richards' son, he might not understand that there are many possible futures. Possibilities, even probabilities, that are subject to change. That is the only thing that has kept me sane.
1: That, and the knowledge that someday, I will buy AIM and just troll the shit out of S.H.I.E.L.D.
0: Oh man, current U.S. Avengers is so freaking good, everybody.
1: Man, the first issue especially is such a powerful statement on so many fronts of sort of the idea of America in really cool ways.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to lie. U.S. Avengers number one definitely made me cry in really good ways. For sure. So our heroes have met up. Now Ahab, as any good villain does, is still pondering and watching and waiting in his time nexus base.
1: Does he have a bunch of monitors with
0: pictures of the heroes? Uh, he's got monitor stuff, yeah. But what he's mainly thinking about is the fact that the Franklin Richards he knew died during the X-Men's big breakout in Days of Future Past, he had no powers at the time either. So this must be not quite right. This is a weird time anomaly indeed. So he sends out more drones, but he also sends out some figures that we have seen versions of before, those being hounds.
1: Now, we've seen that hounds pop up in a few contexts. There's Rachel's past and her memories of that. And in those memories, which, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how varyingly and possibly inaccurate these are, I think, when we last covered Excalibur together. But those hounds are connected very closely, not to Ahab,
0: but to the Shadow King. Yeah, now originally the hounds were very days of future pasty, but we've seen more and more of them. They're these sort of savage, subservient beings who are very good at tracking, but also just physically vicious.
1: And dressed in very fancy bondage wear. Uh,
0: Yeah, pretty much that, like rubber bodysuits with spikes all over them. So we learn here that Ahab is the master of the hounds, which means he must have been the master of Rachel Summers when she was forced to hunt down other mutants. So... This guy suddenly is not just a generic sea captain-looking villain, he's the person responsible for a great deal of Rachel Summer's past torment.
1: Well, and he's presumably the person responsible for the deaths of a huge number of people she was close to, and a huge number of the characters we've come to know and love, based on what little we know of her story.
0: So, the drones and the hounds travel quickly through time and attack the heroes of this issue right here. Richter manages to zap a hound to save Franklin, injuring the hound severely.
1: And Ahab shows up to finish him off... And Richter is racked with guilt. He feels like it's his fault that the Hound died. Cable does his best to reassure him. Cable is not good at reassuring people.
0: You didn't kill him, Richter. Remember that. His death was his master Ahab's doing. But your attack freed him of his conditioning, if only for a moment. Because of you, he died free.
1: That's just... Not true. I mean, the first part is true. Ahab was, in fact, the guy who killed the hound. But the second part is just blatantly false.
0: I mean, maybe the hound was freer than he might otherwise have
1: been. He was definitely and clearly not free. He was talking about how everyone would submit to Ahab, and Ahab was the master.
0: Eh, Maybe that was just regular old Stockholm syndrome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that was it. But nonetheless, I do love Cable in this era. I love Cable as the, you know, teaching the hard lessons to teenagers boss. I mean, maybe he doesn't do it so effectively here. I agree. But overall, it's a dynamic that works so well for me.
1: He's got his moments. He goes between being gruff time dad and like locking them in padded rooms.
0: So where's Franklin Richards these days?
1: Which one? Because we've got the one who's hanging out with his parents, but we've also got the adult Franklin and the adult Franklin is headed to the Museum of Natural History to revisit another memory from his past.
0: He remembers the time that he and a young Rachel Summers were at the Museum of Natural History talking about dinosaurs before everything went straight to hell. It's kind of a nice, heartwarming scene.
1: In this memory, I think she's 8 and he's 11, and they've been playing hide-and-seek. And yeah, we see the friendship kind of that their romance came out of, that they're the kids who've known each other absolutely forever, who have been training together. He's got his powers, she doesn't yet at this point. And a glimpse too, you know, not only into his past, but into what passed for normal life for her before the Fire
0: Nation attacked. (laughs) Yeah, basically that. However, their reverie is interrupted, or rather isn't, by the arrival of a couple of big futuristic-looking Sentinels. Franklin and this vision of Rachel don't even seem to notice, but our gathered heroes who have been following Franklin around do and get in a great big robot fight.
1: The Sentinels, it turns out, are fighting for pretty high stakes. Remember, Sentinel-357, the time itself can be altered. We must protect our future and the
0: Sentinels' ascendancy. Your Sentinels sound kind of like Daleks.
1: More inflection.
0: Yeah, okay, I guess that's Actually,
1: true. no, not exactly more inflection. They they don't up-talk as much. Daleks have gotten really whiny.
0: <laughs> They've always been kind of whiny, but yes, they're especially so these I, days.
1: I do like the idea of malevolence as being fundamentally really petulant.
0: <laughs> and so the heroes manage to fight back, but it's interesting here that the Sentinels are saying they have to preserve the timeline, because as we'll learn... Timelines don't really get replaced so much as they split.
1: Let's talk about this for a minute, because this is during an era where Earth 811 is in a state of massive, massive flux and inconsistency. The idea that Earth 811 is an entirely separate timeline, that the timelines just split and that dark future exists separate from the future of 616 of the main timeline I don't think that had actually been introduced yet at this point. I think we're going to get to that later on in Excalibur, or at least have it spelled out later on in Excalibur. And at this point, the Earth-811 future is still, to some extent, just treated as a possible future, even though there are obvious split points that we've missed.
0: Well, right. I mean, Rachel Summers was Scott and Jean's kid in one, and then Nathan Christopher Charles Summers was Scott and Madeline's kid in the other.
1: Well, and more pertinently, Jean merged with the Phoenix. She wasn't replaced by the Phoenix. I'm thinking of other big events, but... Those actually couldn't have happened yet because Rachel would have been a teenager by then. But yeah, and also Senator Kelly hasn't been assassinated in this timeline and he specifically wasn't assassinated under the circumstances that were the main trigger for the rise of the Sentinels in Earth Eight Eleven.
0: Right. And we'll learn a little bit more about how this works in this version of continuity as we get to know Ahab better.
1: But for now, understand this is a big clusterfuck. It doesn't actually make sense. So if you're trying to pull a simple thread out of it, you're not going to get there.
0: The big fight continues. Richter this time holds back. He doesn't want to be responsible for the death of another hound. However, the hound that he shockwaves a little bit is about to kill him. And so Cable shoots that hound dead.
1: Aw, he's a good, gruff, mean dad. Finally, Franklin sees what's happening. And as his attention is distracted, adult Franklin sees what's happening. And as his attention is distracted, Kid Rachel just fades away. Franklin obliterates the sentinels and hounds in a blaze of rage.
0: Father says, don't. Always don't. My power's dangerous. My power's bad. But, Father, don't you see that they deserve to
1: die? It's worth noting that dangerous and bad are both in quotes. Reed Richards is a
0: dick. I don't think he actually said that. I totally believe he said that. But regardless, young Franklin is seeing all this and is terrified. He gets that this is a future version of himself, and he's terrified that he'll become this horrible, dangerous person.
1: You know, if you've been following along with current continuity, this is basically like the teen Cyclops scenario taken to a nightmarish extreme. It's the horror of facing an adult version of yourself who is all of your fears, who is everything you have nightmares about twisted into something real and being young enough that you can't even agonize properly over it, that you just internalize that you are this monster.
0: You're bad. You're me. I'm bad.
1: And with that, Kid Franklin collapses, and older Franklin decides that he is just going to go ahead and reach in and shut off young Franklin's powers.
0: Father, you were right all along.
1: Old Franklin claims that because of what's happened here, Earth 811 is definitely going to happen. Without Franklin's powers, it's unstoppable, and he vanishes. So, again, that doesn't make a ton of sense. That timeline can't happen exactly as we've seen it. The future that Rachel comes from can't Actually, exist in this timeline because we've missed too many turnoffs. What Ahab's actually shooting for here, what he claims he's trying to do, is basically to replicate it as closely as possible to tweak a few critical
0: points. Meanwhile, Richter is not feeling okay about the way things have gone, this whole, you know, hounds and killing deal.
1: It's just that I know now how the adult Franklin feels angry, so angry. I use my powers without thinking and I nearly kill. And when I'm careful, Cable does my killing for me.
0: Is it all preordained after all? Can anything be changed? Yes, yes it can. Specifically, the issue we're talking about. Let's talk about Chapter 3, X-Factor Annual Number 5.
1: I'm glad we're coming to X-Factor here, and this is a place where I think reading order is important because Richter is basically introducing what's going to be the theme of the X-Factor issue and the following uncanny X-Men issue. Remember, this is the era specifically where Jean Grey is having really big issues with the idea of predestination and fate. And she is going to have to grapple with those on a pretty large scale in this story.
0: But what she and the rest of X-Factor grapple with first is Hyalai, the fastest game in the world.
1: I was going to say they grapple with child endangerment, but they don't. They just sort of blithely run into it.
0: But yeah, they're playing Hyalai, except outdoors, like outside ship, in the air, with these ice scoop kind of things as Gene telekinetically throws ice balls at all of them.
1: Also with a baby, like there is a baby there with them, hanging out while they throw those ice balls at each other.
0: And Cyclops is actually pretty pissed off about this thing, telling Gene to slow down or she's going to hurt Christopher.
1: And she points out, or someone else on the team points out, that Scott was the one who demanded that Christopher be there in the first place, which is terrible parenting.
0: Come on, Scott. Play the game. As long as it is a game and not a tea party.
1: This is the worst tea party ever, says Cyclops. This is
0: some next-level relationship strife. I mean... I've been in fights No,
1: with- no, Miles. Next level relationship strife is on the moon.
0: Oh, okay, good point. That's the other strife. <laughs> but regardless, I mean, X-Factor's always been the soap opera book, and boy, howdy. Now it's just soap opera with Ariel Hyalai.
1: So we're actually a little bit ahead of this crossover in the actual coverage. Gene and Scott are going to get their shit together a few issues hence, but for now, they are at peak dysfunctional.
0: And things could be worse always, and suddenly they are, because ship, you know, their base, the skyscraper, their buddy- abruptly ceases to exist. Because a nearby Franklin Richards saw it on the skyline and said, hey, that building's not supposed to be there, I don't remember that, and he just erased it.
1: Contractors must hate Franklin Richards so
0: fucking much. Now, as all of this is occurring, Ahab is concerned about Franklin Richards having all these powers when the one he thought that he killed didn't. He decides that it's time to get serious to protect the time stream and summons so many hounds. So many
1: This issue we didn't mention as we were going in. This issue is drawn by John Bogdanov, famous as the guy who draws the best hugs in the Marvel universe. It's inked by like 12 people. Like seriously, it is inked by so many people and you can really see the difference from page to page. It's a little bit weird. But Bogdanov's Ahab is so cool because Bogdanov is a fairly naturalistic artist. He draws people who pretty much look like people and are pretty much proportioned like people. His Ahab is weird. His Ahab looks like he's drawn by Steve Lealoha. Yeah, Actually. kind of. He's got those exaggerated proportions, and he is just
0: incredibly Kirby-looking, and it's really cool. Back in our main timeline, the other group of heroes that left at the end of Fantastic Four Annual Number 1, which okay, is— Okay, who's that again? We are juggling so many superheroes. So many. These are Ben Grimm, the Human Torch, Forge, and Ms. Marvel. They find X-Factor just sort of lying on the ground, having been saved by Gene's telekinesis. And explain what they know about what's going on with adult not, Franklin.
1: Not just Jean's telekinesis, we also had an extremely quick-diving angel who managed to catch baby Nathan after a moment of really hilarious terror.
0: That too. I mean, and the entire time Archangel still had his high ally ice gauntlets on, it was pretty great. And so they introduce uh, the various characters to one another, and I object here, because at one point, somebody introduces Ms. Marvel to Beast, and damn it, they were actually really close in Fantastic Four number 312, which was a Fall of the Mutants tie-in, and they had this whole thing where they both felt like they were suddenly monsters, because Beast had lost his intelligence, and Ms. Marvel had just turned all rocky, and it makes me sad that they forgot about that issue when they wrote this one.
1: Fortunately, though, that moment is overshadowed by the fucking ridiculousness that is Bobby Drake and Johnny Storm.
0: Yo, ice and fire. The unbeatable combo. And they have a high five that's like all hissy because- Is it a high five or a handshake? It's sort of a hand clasp, I guess.
1: I feel like these guys are probably the two bros who everyone hates being around when they're hanging out together, who just like bring out the most obnoxious in each other.
0: It's a total bro-down. That happens.
1: What is a bro-down?
0: It's like a hoedown, but with bros. They do square dancing. Do you
1: square dance or line dance at a hoedown?
0: I mean, you know, you could do both. Really, a square dance is just four line dances, uh, all at perpendicular angles.
1: That would be four line segment dances, Miles.
0: Well, that then. That's exactly what they do. There's a lot of geometry involved. It's very complex at Hoedowns, as I understand it.
1: And then they crush beer cans on their foreheads?
0: Yes. Okay. I'm glad we worked that out. Well, they don't have too much time to crush beer cans or do line segment dances, because you remember how Phoenix left England a while back because she sensed Franklin Richards? I do. She shows up. Chasing Franklin Richards and crashes the fuck into him in this giant explosion in the sky. And that's the end of that. And they collide
1: with a giant room. The sound effects in this entire crossover are spectacular. And I'm going to make sure that there are a lot of them that make it into the visual companion because, man, these are
0: just delightful. What's also good is the narration right here.
1: She is the irresistible force. He is the immovable object. Their union ignites the sky. Their past has shredded her soul, and she has ripped the memories from her mind. Her heart is a minefield. He offers release. And for a single human moment, she glories in it.
0: And John Bogdanov draws such impressive anguish on Rachel's face as this happens.
1: Rachel is furious because Franklin has been siphoning her power away from the start, She knows he's familiar, but she doesn't actually remember him. And he's confused because the Rachel who he knew had no Phoenix Force.
0: And so there's just this giant Dragon Ball Z-esque energy battle in the sky, during which, I'd like to point out, Franklin's clothes get mostly blasted off, but Rachel's don't, so take a somewhat subversive drink.
1: And he poses for a moment in his tiny, ripped-off, conveniently remaining shorts that are all that's left of his jumpsuit. Now, someone else is surprised to see the Phoenix Force here, and that is Jean Grey.
0: Because Jean Grey doesn't know anything about Rachel Summers, about Rachel having the Phoenix Force, about Rachel being her daughter from an alternate timeline. This is all new to her and happening at a rather stressful moment. Rachel, on the other hand, has been waiting for this moment ever since she came to the present day, to Earth 616.
1: Why did she have to find me like this now? A fallen, confused wreck. Hound marks ripped across my face. But it won't matter. She'll love me anyway.
0: But Jean is seriously freaked out. She never remembered having a, a daughter. She's not married. She's not with Cyclops in that regard. What is all this? She retreats to Scott and Nathan Christopher moving well, away from Rachel.
1: Not only that, but a kid from the future makes things a little bit messy. We'll get to that more soon. Cyclops, meanwhile, is totally shocked that she's his
0: kid. Okay, I cry foul
1: here. Yeah, no, that's some complete bullshit. He totally knew in the X-Men Alpha Flight crossover.
0: Yeah, it was very clear at the end of that that he'd figured it out, but he didn't think she was ready to talk about it. And so he kept things kind of vague. Like it was actually really expertly written. And again, I- Expertly. Expertly. Again, I kind of wish they'd done their homework a little more here.
1: I wish they had too, but it makes this kind of funny. Like I like the idea that he's just pretending to be surprised. Like, oh my gosh, she's our daughter. How shocking. I would never have guessed that. What can we do with this peculiar situation that is totally news to me and of which I had no inkling going in?
0: Well, if there's one thing we know about X-Men drama is that it's only ever helped by a robot attack, so remember those robots and hounds that Ahab threw at the characters a little while ago? They show up now.
1: Of course they do.
0: And Rachel, who's already in this intense emotional state, just disintegrates all of them.
1: Jean is
0: appalled. Rachel, what, what did you do to them? What did I do?! Not what did he do to me? And she flies the hell away.
1: You know, I think Rachel's right to be pretty pissed off here because we've just seen her and Ahab in combination recap exactly what happened to her and what he did to her. And here's Gene basically being like, what have you done? How could you be so thoughtless and destroy this person who killed everyone you ever knew and brainwashed you?
0: I actually really like that Jean's being kind of petty here. I think it fits her character. It fits this part of her emotional arc.
1: Oh, I agree. I just think that Rachel's totally in the right in this conversation.
0: Oh, absolutely. Now, Ahab isn't so easily deterred by his prey escaping, so he summons, like, all the freaking hounds ever to kill the non-Rachel heroes, at which point the characters from the New Mutants chapter show up to help the fight, and it's a grand melee.
1: Yeah, so we, again, we've got so many characters in play. I'm going to say the ones who it actually matters to keep track of in this are Reed, Sue, both Franklins,
0: Scott, Jean, Rachel, and Ahab. Pretty much. They're the most central of the characters. Yeah,
1: other characters are going to have their moments, but they are the ones who the story is really about. They are the ones who you can't really have this story without.
0: Well, during this fight with them and everybody else, Reed and Cyclops figure something out. Using Reed's science and Cyclops's, hey, my optic blast apparently disappears in this one specific part of the sky, they realize that there's a temporal displacement field hiding Ahab's big time travel stuff.
1: So, I know Reed fights for real, but mostly he seems to discover and invent things in the middle of battle, and I really love the idea of him just randomly yelling, SCIENCE! during fights, and also possibly just at inappropriate moments outside of fights, like at restaurants.
0: I just imagine him and Namor having a fight between science and Imperius Rex.
1: Do I get to do both?
0: Uh, If you can do both simultaneously, I'd be very impressed.
1: Kyle, can we make this happen? Can we use podcast magic? Imperial Rex.
0: Oh man, truly, we live in the future, but not like Earth-811. I mean, (sighs) not yet, anyway.
1: Is there a Marvel universe that's the same, but everyone just yells all the time?
0: I think that's just the main Marvel universe.
1: I hate that universe.
0: (laughs) Well... The heroes are able to fix this problem by doing what heroes generally do in big crossovers, which is firing all of their different colored lasers at the same place. And that stops the yelling? Well, that stops Ahab's time machine stuff, and they Ah!
1: Do. Ah, I was still on the yelling.
0: They manage to defeat him. He retreats yet again. Now, at this point, Scott and Jean have a chance to talk about Rachel Summers, their alternate future daughter. Jean is still understandably freaked out.
1: But their moment of existential angst is interrupted by Franklin, who is having his own issues right now.
0: That child you hold will have more power than all of you. You accept him. You love him, your little Christopher Nathan Charles Summers. But it is Rachel whom I love. Rachel who is special. Rachel who is your only child. Why can't you see it? That child doesn't belong here. He was not supposed to be born. So I will take him away.
1: And Franklin and Nathan Christopher disappear.
0: And Cyclops collapses. I really do love this whole conflicting timeline trope. Like, it reminds me of when they threw Bishop and Cable's timelines in conflict in the X-Men cartoon. The idea that everybody has their own future that they want to preserve or that they want to prevent.
1: Well, you see that played out even more vividly in the Cable and Hope series and the Messiah Complex stuff when Bishop is chasing Hope and Cable through the time stream.
0: Exactly. I can't get enough of that stuff. Speaking of Cable, Cable is right here. Nathan Christopher was right here. Cable didn't say anything because at the time there was no inkling that Cable was Nathan Christopher.
1: Right. That had yet to be figured out. That is not a twist. That is an A plus 100% pure grade A retcon.
0: But meanwhile, let's finish this because we have one chapter left to this big time traveling messy epic.
1: You know what I love about events like this? I love it when the last issue is the best one.
0: And it totally is here. It's not
1: always, but man, this just fires on all cylinders. This is the uncanny X-Men annual. And I mean, first of all, the creative team. This is Chris Claremont and Art Adams.
0: And I gotta say, I, it's hard to do better than that. I mean, I certainly love Claremont and Davis. I love Claremont and Sienkiewicz. I love Simonson and Simonson. But Claremont and Adams, God damn.
1: And Adams is such a good choice for this particular story.
0: Well, not least of which because he starts it off with Rachel Summers eating a giant burger wearing an amazing wide-brimmed hat with pom-poms hanging from the brim.
1: There's got to be a name for that type of hat. I sort of think of it as a mariachi hat, but I'm sure there's an actual proper name for it.
0: Well, it's pretty awesome regardless. But yeah, she's just hanging out, sort of pondering her own dark future and how the present that she's in is so different, when suddenly three of the bad guys from RoboCop bust in with shotguns, robbing the joint. Okay. I mean, seriously, they're straight out of the RoboCop movie, the first one.
1: I would sort of have expected to see them in a Simonson issue.
0: Eh, that's true. Simonson did do that RoboCop story. Let
1: me actually digress briefly, because I would like to preach the gospel of one of the greatest forgotten comics of all time. This is RoboCop versus Terminator. It's written by Frank Miller. It's drawn by Walter Simonson. It is fucking spectacular. It is so good. It is legitimately and unironically one of my favorite comics.
0: For serious, yeah.
1: And it's RoboCop versus Terminator, and it's licensed and ridiculous, and it's also kind of a marvelous bit of continuity sleight of hand that works really well. But yeah, if you can track it down, you should do that, because it's an awful lot of fun and also just way better than it has any reasonable right to be.
0: Well, Rachel doesn't consider the excellent comic for very long, because she just knocks the robbers unconscious, crunches their guns into balls. With another round of fantastic sound effects. And flies away, only once again to detect a very familiar energy signature.
1: So, once again, Franklin Richards. And she phoenixes up into the sky, psychically crying out his name. We see, you know, what we see when there's a big psychic event, which is a montage of panels of psychically sensitive folks around the Marvel Universe looking skyward. And then we see Franklin show up to meet Rachel, who this time really does recognize him.
0: You look good, Rachel.
1: You two scrapper?
0: You're not ever going to let me live that nickname down, are you?
1: Worked hard enough to earn it.
0: Mostly tossing with you, as I recall. Probably why Power Pack were the only kids our folks could trust as babysitters.
1: I mean, isn't he about the same age as Katie Power?
0: He's a little bit younger than her, even. Okay. But, yeah, this really hammers home just how soon into our future Rachel and Franklin were kids. I mean, Franklin is a kid in this present-day Marvel Universe. It's easy to think of Days of Future Past as this far-flung, horrible apocalypse— But what makes it so scary, what makes it so effective, is that it's right on our doorstep, time-wise.
1: They kiss, we get a bright phoenix flare, and then the two of them head back to make good with the rest of the superheroes. Some of them are receptive, but Cyclops is still really upset that his kid has disappeared. And Mr. Fantastic would really like the younger version of Franklin to wake up from a coma now, please.
0: At which point the panel zooms in on Franklin's intense eyes, adult Franklin, that is, and then Reed and Sue are smiling, and Scott and Jean aren't thinking about Nathan Christopher anymore. And everything is fine. This kind of reminds me of uh, The Beyonder, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. Adult Franklin, and this version of Adult Franklin especially, has a very Beyonder vibe. And some of that is his functional omnipotence. But as much as his sense of displacement, like things are just off, and he doesn't quite understand the world, and so he's just sort of shaping it almost instinctually, and almost kind of innocently.
0: And so Franklin and Rachel are congratulated by most of the others there on finding each other again, on being happy, and they leave, at which point everybody snaps out of it and it becomes very clear that Franklin was telepathically manipulating all of them. Whoops. Meanwhile in New York, Storm and Gambit, who I was not expecting to see the first time I read this story are sneaking into the ruins of Professor Xavier's mansion.
1: And Storm, we'll remind you, still has the body of a teenage version of herself, but she has her adult memories and mind restored.
0: Gambit sees the ruins. Some student's power got a wee bit out of control, hmm?
1: Hardly. The mansion was blown up by one of the X-Men's foes, Mr. Sinister.
0: Like the name.
1: A man who dresses as you do and calls himself Gambit is hardly in a position to cast aspersions.
0: I do love their banter.
1: And Storm's sick burn.
0: Right. Now, one interesting thing here, technically, if you're talking about when the issue came out, this is Gambit's first appearance. Now, story-wise, it's absolutely in that issue of Uncanny X-Men we covered. Here, Storm and Gambit have already met and finished their adventures. But for people who were buying books as they came out, this was the first time they saw Gambit, with no explanation of who the hell he was, and with a sudden spoiler of why Storm had been de-aged and the fact that she was going to be mentally re-aged.
1: Yes, she'll explain that at length later. But first, they are caught by Cable.
0: Because Cable, of course, is leading the New Mutants in the sub-sub-basement of the mansion.
1: Cable is interrogating Gambit and Young Storm. He doesn't recognize either of them, when luckily for them, Forge and Banshee show up, and Forge does recognize Aurora, even in her younger state.
0: He is understandably shocked, because this was his former lover, and now she's a little kid, and I gotta say, that would make me feel kinda weird were I in his position.
1: So, I mentioned that Art Adams is the perfect choice for this story, and... Storm is a big part of why, because Adams manages to hit this balance of drawing her with very childlike facial features and very adult facial expressions.
0: It works really well. That
1: is subtle, and that's some incredibly good visual storytelling.
0: So everybody meets up. The New Mutants are here as well. Everyone once again explains what's going on for the benefit of the readers who might have come in with this chapter as well.
1: And Storm points out something that somehow has not occurred to anyone else. Franklin Richards, the Franklin Richards from... Rachel's future and timeline is dead.
0: Right, she knows because of telepathic contact with Rachel Summers, because of her bond with Kitty Pride, that Franklin died during the big escape in Days of Future Past, so something else is going on here. That adult Franklin is some other kind of entity. Well, at
1: this point, they don't even necessarily know that he is Franklin at all. He could be an imposter. He could be pretty much anything. But whatever he is, he is powerful, and he is obviously pretty fucking dangerous.
0: Now, there are a lot of heroes in this room. I mean, it's what? Storm Gambit, Cable, Cannonball, Sunspot, Forge, Banshee, Marvel Girl, Beast, Mr. Fantastic, Miss Marvel, Human Torch, Ben Grimm, Boom Boom, Warlock, and Young Franklin. But a couple people who are not here are Susan Richards and Scott Summers. Susan's trying to cheer Scott up about his relationship with Jean. Yeah,
1: they're hanging out on the roof having an everything is terrible and our children have disappeared moment.
0: And things get worse because Ahab appears out of nowhere and captures them, bringing them to his time nexus and putting them into science machines.
1: For some exposition, because really, what's a villain
0: without a detailed villain speech? I feel like this guy would sound like a sea captain. We keep coming back to that, so I'm just going to go for it. I am Ahab, Houndmaster, Hunter of Mutants and their Slayer. After Pride's time switch, the hierarchy set in motion appropriate countermeasures- Seating me and mine at this temporal nexus to prevent any further rewriting of what is, for us, history.
1: You mentioned he sounds like a sea captain, and it's worth pointing out. We mentioned that there are going to be a number of red herrings around Ahab. And the first and most obvious is that this dude looks like Banshee. I mean, his face is very different, but he's missing the same eye and he's missing the same other limbs. He's got a big, floofy red beard.
0: As older headmaster Banshee, yeah, totally.
1: And right now, what he decides to do is give Cyclops and the Invisible Woman supervillain makeovers as hounds. Cyclops looks ridiculous. He's in sort of green armor with a rebar randomly sticking out. Invisible Woman looks amazing.
0: Oh, yeah. She's got this amazing white and green spandex outfit with, like, a Quicksilver hair V and these giant spiked shoulder things and this four on her chest with the anti symbol over it, which I think is the perfect touch.
1: Okay, first of all, two notes. One, it's a really X-Men evolution looking design. Two, while I recognize that the big spiky collar is kind of impractical, I fucking love this costume and I wish she had just adopted a toned down version of it as her normal costume because it's great.
0: I mean, I would wear that to the office. To be fair, I work for a comic book company, so people wouldn't really think twice, but still.
1: If you showed up in a Fantastic Four spandex bodysuit?
0: I mean, I guess it's the wrong publisher.
1: With a big, spiky, dangerous Peter Pan collar, I guess?
0: It would be hard to go through doors, to be fair.
1: It would be exceptionally hard to go through doors. I don't know if it would be like strife levels of hard to go through doors, but challenging anyway.
0: Well, Ahab uses his new hounds for the main purpose that hounds exist for, which is tracking. He wants Sue and Scott to look for their kids, respectively Franklin and... And Rachel, so he can track them down and kill them.
1: And he assumes that Scott and Sue are going to be able to do this because they are these kids' parents. Sue is able to get a beat on Franklin. Scott can't sense Rachel at all.
0: Because as we learned from Chris Claremont...
1: Parthenogenesis!
0: Yep, originally Rachel's official father was the Phoenix Force itself, not Scott. In more idyllic circumstances, Franklin, Rachel, and young Nathan Christopher are having a picnic.
1: Wait, so they just took Nathan Christopher with them?
0: Okay, so the thing we find out, Nathan Christopher did, in fact, vanish out of existence. Okay. There's a backup story involving Wolverine giving a moral pep talk to Franklin and Madripoor. The fuck? Where he, we learn that Franklin is convinced to restore Nathan Christopher to the timeline. Why? Because Wolverine told him to not be a dickhead, basically, because of what the X-Men represent. Huh. It's actually a surprisingly good story, but we don't have time to cover it because we already have so much content.
1: Jubilee is in it, but her sunglasses are the wrong color.
0: Yeah, what can you do? Early days. So, it's a nice, idyllic picnic, but as we learned from this story and X-Men in general, that can't last because Ahab and his hounds teleport in yet again. wah, wah. And manage to take them out. And I should point out here that the neuro-whip that Ahab has is derived from Genosian technology, a nice bit of foreshadowing to how big of a deal Genosha is going to become.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is definitely dropping some pretty heavy teases for um, Extinction Agenda.
0: And Ahab brings them back to his time nexus and has them all secured and restrained and tied up and is mocking them, specifically mocking a newly defiant Rachel Summers.
1: I'm not a scared, shattered kid anymore, old man. So lost and lonely and hurt she'd respond to a gentle hand from anyone.
0: And the cavalry arrives at this exact, dramatically perfect moment. And by the cavalry, I mean freaking everyone. So many characters. Man,
1: I want a poster of this page. This is one of those, it's not a splash, but it's a single panel page where just everyone shows up for the fight.
0: Oh yeah, we get everybody confronting everybody, including a close confrontation between Ahab and Cable, who, as it turns out, have almost the same face, the same scar and everything.
1: And Ahab teases Cable with this.
0: What's wrong, Cable? See someone you know?
1: Not technically, Ahab. I'm aware that this is just something put in to deliberately throw readers off.
0: Your cable sounds like Batman.
1: My cable is Batman.
0: I feel okay about that. Ahab temporarily wins the fight by activating a big electricity-ish energy field across the whole floor except right where he's standing, which is very convenient. What an asshole. He totally is. But suddenly, a sparkly, glowing version of Franklin looking like some kind of a god rises up in a hybrid Fantastic Four New Mutants uniform, all-powerful, and basically stops Ahab in his tracks. Ahab
1: tries to flee with his hounds, including Rachel.
0: But in a tiny font and a big word balloon, one of my very favorite comic book tricks, she simply says, No. Mr. Fantastic tells Ahab,
1: It's over, Ahab! You've lost!
0: Only a battle, Richards! And the beauty is the horror for you. I know how the war ends. Whatever you do to me now, you'll still meet me in the days to come.
1: And he teleports away with a really distinctive and familiar purple banff. I mean, it's exactly Nightcrawler sound effect. Is
0: that a red herring too? Could Nightcrawler turn into Ahab against all logic and narrative convention? Ahab is everyone. Maybe I'm Ahab. Maybe you're Ahab.
1: I think we're all Ahab a little bit.
0: Everyone heads back to Four Freedoms Plaza. I mean, they've kind of won-ish, or at least they've defeated Ahab seemingly permanently. But the problem is, Cyclops and the Invisible Woman, they're hounds, and that is a permanent one-way genetic transformation. Young Franklin Richards is still unconscious, and Rachel Summers suddenly faints.
1: Storm, who's the one who's worked out what's happening, finally confronts adult Franklin Richards. He died. She knows this. She knows it from old Kate Pride's memories. She knows this from Rachel's memories. He isn't the real Franklin Richards. He's not alive. He's not back here. And he's the one who's causing this.
0: So what am I doing here? How can I be?
1: And Reed says, And man, Miles is making me do this in a serious voice. I would like to lodge my official complaint. It's a serious scene. Reed says, I suppose in that final split instant before the end, you cried out in a primal scream of denial. That propelled you to a time and place where you remembered being safe.
0: That's all I am. A memory?
1: To be fair, Franklin, you've never really been safe in this time and place. I mean, do you know where you live?
0: Stop rooting in the scene, Dad. It's supposed to be sad.
1: Look, Franklin, I'm just being pragmatic. I mean, I am the less engaged of the two parents here, and the other one regularly brings his kid to fight practice.
0: Well, anyway... Adult Franklin realizes he's just basically a shadow kept animated by Franklin's dream self power and Rachel's phoenix and life forces both. That's why they're both out of it right now. That's why they're both unconscious.
1: Right, he can only continue to exist as long as young Franklin is unconscious because he's a dream projection and he's drawing power from Rachel to keep himself coherent and running.
0: And he sadly says to Rachel, who wakes up a little bit at least, that he can't keep existing if it's at the cost of both of them, of these innocent lives.
1: So Reed comes up with a machine to fix this because that's what Reed does. Adult Franklin will disappear, restoring young Franklin and finally activating young Franklin's powers. But it's unclear what's going to happen to Rachel because they're assuming that Franklin going away and young Franklin getting his powers might erase the timeline because adult Franklin wasn't supposed to have had access to those powers.
0: Which means that Earth Eight Eleven will never happen and Rachel Summers will cease to be.
1: Small price to pay for the salvation of the future. A way, perhaps, of atoning for Dark Phoenix. Of proving Phoenix is a force for life.
0: And love, Red. Never forget that.
1: And Rachel flares up as only Art Adams can draw. She tells Jean about the holo-empathic crystal that has both of their essences. This is something that Lalandra created after the Dark Phoenix saga. Lalandra being the empress of the bird people from space, who's also Charles Xavier's girlfriend. It gets complicated. But it's got Jean's psychic essence in it, and Rachel had added some of her psychic essence to it as well.
0: And so Rachel says goodbye as she pours all of her power into this machine, but mostly into the hounds, into Cyclops and the Invisible Woman, rebuilding their genetic code from the ground up. This is the Phoenix Force. The Phoenix Force is life incarnate. It can do this.
1: And she's meaning this as sort of a last hurrah, as the last thing she's going to do before she presumably disappears. But adult Franklin dissipates. Everything's restored to normal. And Rachel is still there. Not only is she still there, but she's still got her hound scars.
0: So clearly Earth-811, at least in some way, still happened. Like, was this all for nothing? Was she unable to fix the future? Are things still going to go in that direction? And so she flies away.
1: Rachel Summers needs a hug, but she's not going to get one because she's covered in spikes.
0: It's true. So the other heroes bid farewell, but the last thing we see is Jean heading to her parents' house to the holo-empathic crystal with the essence of the Dark Phoenix and the essence of Rachel, and there's this great art Adams drawn panel of her illuminated by the holo empathic crystals glow as she looks on and sees the twin faces of her phoenix self and her daughter inside. And it's a really sweet way to end this story, a really sweet and fitting way.
1: Yeah, we left out a lot of the Jean and Rachel dialogue, but some of this story is Jean grappling with the fact that in some ways Rachel is representative and the embodiment of everything Jean fears about predestination, but she's also a real, actual person. And you can't just make real, actual people into symbols because it's a huge dick move.
0: It's going to be a while before they fully reconcile, but we see the seeds of that being planted right here. So that's Days of Future Present. That is the official kind of unwieldy, meandering story that follows it up. I don't think it's nearly as strong, but, you know, it's not so bad.
1: It's a really interesting story, and it's a really interesting snapshot of the Marvel Universe at a very specific time, it's also, I think, a very good transition into the 90s because the main story is a ghost story. It's themed very much around loss, the idea of letting go. And it's paired with a backup story in each issue, basically around the same premise.
0: We already talked about the Wolverine story where he gives a pep talk to Franklin to stop him from being an omnipotent, horrible person. But the other two backup stories in the X-Books are called Tribute the First and Tribute the Second. They're both by Peter David. They're both excellent stories, and we're going to get to them along with the other Tribute the Stories in a future episode. But just suffice to say, they're great. I'm excited about talking about them whenever we do.
1: Yeah, they are really, really nice one-shots. Now, this brings us to the end of the Days of Future Present storyline. And with that, you've got questions. Sophie fights the 1218 universe, asks on Tumblr. For Jay... What are your favorite versions of Cyclops' casual ruby quartz glasses? And from Miles, who has your favorite beard in any Marvel Universe?
0: Oh man, I don't want to mess with somebody with a name like that.
1: The rest of you can Google that universe designation when you get home.
0: Okay, so I'll start with the beard one. I'm going to say that for me, it's probably a tie between 80s Thor, when Thor had to grow a beard over the scars Hela gave him on his face, because he just looked so much better with a beard, Or possibly, like, future Dark King Thor, where he rules over a ruined Asgard and has a big black metal arm and has this giant king beard. Those are pretty good. But I'm also a big fan of the Maestro, the alternate future version of the Hulk. And it's not a beard, but if we're going to talk mustaches, Jay Jonah Jameson's is kind of perfect.
1: What about Magus?
0: Magus has, like, a cool robot beard. I think it's up there, but I'm not sure it cracks my top three. All right. What about the Cyclops glasses thing?
1: So, I don't have a single favorite pair. But I do have two qualities that I feel like Cyclops' glasses should have. One is practical, one's aesthetic. In practical terms, I do not accept Cyclops' glasses that don't either seal or have side panels. I think that's important. We've seen the full aperture of his blasts, and yeah, his glasses need to be some kind of wraparounds. The other thing is the aesthetic, and I do not buy Cyclops' glasses that make him look cool. They should look pretty dorky.
0: Legit. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, if you could bring back an X-Man from the dead to fight an Inhumans versus X-Men, who would you resurrect? Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I feel like you should get at least like a month or two dead. I'm going to throw in a wild card. I'm going to resurrect Madeline Pryor. Oh. Because she would be a really interesting chaotic note in this battle.
0: I think I would say Rusty Collins, who is of course dead in current continuity.
1: Why would you bring back Rusty Collins to fight the Inhumans?
0: Do you hate him that much? No, I just want him to have a chance to actually have a personality. He'd just fall the fuck over. But no, he's come closest to actually being interesting uh, during big moral conflict, so maybe Inhumans vs. X-Men could have been his ticket to not being boring.
1: Freedom Force would come back from the dead just to show up and arrest him.
0: (laughs) They probably would, and then he would accidentally break out of jail again.
1: This podcast is entirely listener-supported, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show itself from a range of fictional characters and entities. Today, I believe I am turning over the mic to the master of red herrings himself, the one and only Ahab.
0: I've been waiting for this moment, waiting for the hierarchy to awaken me here between time and space. History must be saved. So feel the bite of my psychic harpoon, Andrew Patterson, and feel your hound self burst free along with more face stripes and spikes and shoulder pads than you ever thought you could have. Today we hunt. In our time, Brian McInwell's died powerless, but now he returns to threaten the past and the fabric of time itself. It's a code red time emergency. Unleash the sentinel warp attack.
1: And with that, Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast KaijuCast.
0: New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, reviews, and more.
0: This show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainTheX-Men.com.
1: Next week, we're back with Excalibur.
0: Just in time for a bar fight, vampires, and some very difficult landscaping.